I wonder if you've ever had the problem of mind reading when it comes to personal relationships or specifically not being able to read minds. Um, I've not only experienced this, I've maybe got a PhD in this. I'm so experienced at it. Mind reading. When you're in a situation and perhaps there was something that you expected to be done or something you were expected to do. And eventually, as you, you know, have a little bit of conflict and back and forth over it, you get to the point where your recourse is, well, I'm not a mind reader. You should have told me that that's... Ex- you should have spelt it out. You should have written it down. You should have left it on post-it notes. I d- and you're actually trying to make the point that... And it's, it's an important one. It depends how you make it. But, you know, it's as much about how you say it as what you say. But that if you're in the dark about something and you don't know about it, there's, there's not an awful lot that you can do about it. And hopefully, as you get better and more skillful at relationships, then you get better at saying what needs to be said in a good way, in a way that's appropriate to say it, that will actually lead to a peaceful resolution and the outcome that you're hoping for. That's a gold standard. I don't have a PhD in that. I'm further back at the sort of, you didn't tell me sort of thing. But the point is, the point is especially for this passage this morning, you can't do much with things that you don't know about if you're in the dark in any way. We need to find ways of saying things skillfully. And that's especially crucial when it comes to the gospel and, and sharing the light of the gospel. The Samaritans who are in this passage, who are the people in view as Jesus speaks to this lady, they were very much in the dark. They didn't have the light of Jesus and the gospel. And in this passage, it's wonderful because it starts to break through and Jesus starts to shed some light on who God really is, what he's really here to do, what he's achieving in the world. And in some, in some way, the fact that that's going to be revealed to the whole world, it kind of begins in a way with this conversation with this Samaritan woman. So Jesus starts bringing the gospel light to her and taking her out of the darkness. But through that, we also learn a huge amount about how we can do the same thing. There's both things going on. There's Jesus pushing out the plan of redemption to a people who didn't previously have it, just the start of that, but there's also immeasurable lessons for us to learn in how we take up that command to share the light of the gospel with others, to be salt and light, as we were thinking about a few weeks ago. But this interaction that Jesus has with the woman at the well it doesn't make a huge amount of sense unless you know some background uh, about Samaritans, about the culture of the time, about the tension between Samaritans and Jews. The passage, quite frankly, seems a bit strange unless we know a few of those things. So what I want to do, first of all, is I want to do a bit of that background and fill in some of those blanks, and then hopefully we'll get to seeing a few things about the passage that we can learn from it. I mainly want to think about the actions of the woman, and how that relates to our topic as we're going through the focus group of not keeping, holding on to the good news for ourselves. I want to think about, firstly, the fact that she leaves the jar. What does that mean? What's, how is that significant for us? Then she invites the people she speaks to, to this person. And then lastly, she leads them through her actions to the word of God. She leaves the jar, she invites the people to this person she meets, and she leads them to the word of God. What is the significance of the Samaritans? What are they all about as a people? It goes right back to Israel's history, which you can read about it in 1 Kings 12 specifically, is that 
you had David and then Solomon, his son, as a powerful king who God set apart in order to rule all his people um, who he delivered from Egypt. This is a very quick potted history. But then Solomon's empire becomes so great that it's really difficult to hang on to. And within one generation, it's a bit like we saw with the tail end of the British Empire. The more territory you have and the more powerful and wealthy an empire you build, the harder that is not only to hold on to, but to pass on in its present form. Um, And I'm not making a comment on the uh, righteousness of empires, whether they're good, bad, or indifferent. The point is that they're hard to hold on to. That's exactly what happened with Israel. And so the kingdom fragments into two pieces, which you can read about in 1 Kings 12. And so you've got two kingdoms, which is quite confusing, because then you talk about Old Testament Israel. And for a good chunk of it, it's Israel and Judah to the south. And the northern tribes of Israel, it's the ten tribes, northern tribes of Israel who become this new kingdom, they actually have a a steeper decline than Judah to the south. They go through uh, being persecuted and harangued by their enemies that surround them geographically. And then eventually they get into the situation where they're carried off, they're totally conquered as a people, and they're carried off and there's just a remnant left. And then... As many conquering peoples did back then, the people like the Assyrians would settle some of their, uh, you know, their educated elite in this area they'd conquered in Israel. So within a few centuries, Israel's almost the north of it is is unrecognizable as, you know, a nation with specific religion and laws and promises from God. It's kind of demolished in terms of what it was. Not only that, but its religion gets mixed in with all the the people who've conquered them, who bring their own gods and idols and their own special uh, rituals and practices. They bring all that in. And so over hundreds of years, their religion becomes a mishmash and then kind of circles back to being something that worships the God of the Old Testament again, but it's got all kinds of problems. And that's why you see some of the tension in this passage. The Jews to the south in Jesus' time knew this history and hated these guys as a result. Because they saw them as being impure, as having compromised the purity and the truth of God's revelation. And just to give you one example of that, the Samaritans got to the point where they said that um, not only was the true temple to the north, where their capital was, Mount Gerizim, and so it wasn't to be in Jerusalem, but also they'd kind of said that there's this whole other revelation on top of what Moses got in the Ten Commandments that stated that. Now, you can't find that in any of the Old Testament documents, but that was a real hardcore belief that they held on to. So they're in in complete tension, these two people. They believe totally different things in many ways, although they broadly worship the same God. And we would recognize it today as interracial conflict and and hatred. It's not God-glorifying at all, the kind of attitude they had to one another. But an important omission from the Samaritans part was that they only took the first five books of Moses and some of their own kind of traditions and revelations as being an authority. So the whole law, sorry, the whole prophets and the writings, anything by Isaiah, Jeremiah, your Old Testament stuff like the Psalms and Ecclesiastes, they didn't have any of that and they didn't believe any of that was the word of God. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament prophecies from a Christian point of view, you know that they are loaded up with signposts to 
Jesus of Nazareth and what he's going to do and how he's going to save God's people. So they didn't have all of that. And that's where some of this starts to become quite intense as Jesus is bringing some of that extra revelation. And that's why Jesus is, if you read the passage, justified in saying, you guys don't have the whole picture. There's a lot that you're missing out um, that God has revealed to his people. So that's the Samaritans. But it's not just that this Jesus is talking to a Samaritan, which for a lot of Jews would be bad enough. That would be enough to get him indicted by the likes of the Pharisees. But she's also a woman. And, you know, we have come a long way since the time of, well, the whole world probably in the time of the Gospels were being written. But certainly in Palestine with its traditions, you've probably heard it before that in this passage, it's well known that in that society, women went out to draw water from the well, which you needed all day for drinking, for cooking, for washing and cleaning. You needed the day supply and they usually went together. And not only that, but they went really early in the morning because the heat of the day made it a difficult task. And so there's enough to read into here that, well, she's on her own, and with the other things that we find out about her life that Jesus draws out, it's a reasonable inference that she's on her own because she doesn't want the stigma of being around other people. It would have been highly frowned upon the fact that she'd had five husbands Regardless of what, you know, we don't know. We don't know whether that's through her own uh, decision-making or whether that's through some of them being widowed. We don't know, but we can imagine if she's not with other people and she's not coming when everyone else goes to the well, that there's a reason for that. And it seems to be in line with the character of Jesus that that's the sort of person that he would go to speak to. But it gets worse. (laughs) There's more going on in this passage because... It was actually hugely frowned upon for men and women to even speak in public in first century Palestine. There was actually, we have really good historical evidence that there are documents that show us that it was a, a rabbinical law. So if you were a rabbi, a Jewish teacher and leader, as Jesus was, and that's how he was seen, it was scandalous for you to talk to a woman in public. There were some even rabbinic laws saying you shouldn't talk to your wife in public. It's just not the done thing. You talk at home, but not in public. So like I said, we have come a long, long way. What I love about Jesus is he just smashes through a lot of that culture. Um, not everything, I wouldn't say Jesus is a revolutionary, but there are so many things like that when we understand the background that the details become very precious because he's not actually concerned about man-made traditions and laws and burdens that might be placed on people and trying to follow God. He's really concerned about helping people follow God. So, this woman is kind of persona non grata. You shouldn't really be near her talking to her. The disciples even seem to be a bit shocked that he is. So, she's a Samaritan with all the baggage that goes with that, and she's a woman, and Jesus technically shouldn't really be speaking to her. So, what's the significance? Well, like I said, firstly, we're going to go to she leaves the water jar. In verse 28, we read, Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town. She leaves the water jar. Well, the most common assumption is that she forgot. She was so excited. She met Jesus. They had this amazing conversation, and she was just flustered and ran off and left the water jar. I don't think that's what happened. I don't think that the language supports that. I think it's actually a fairly deliberate act. But what is this water jar in the story all about? It's actually really important. It's actually, in some ways, one of the kind of central symbolic artifacts that, that, that the story turns on. The jar is basically how Jesus gets in to have a conversation with her. 
It's the topic that he brings up to do his mission. He uses it to intentionally challenge her religious framework, which she understood. You see, you know that the Jews had a lot of ritual purity laws. Pharisees used to give Jesus and his disciples a hard time because they wouldn't wash their hands and their dishes in the right way. Well, Samaritans were thought to be permanently unclean, especially Samaritan women. It's just like, so, so you definitely don't share eating and drinking vessels with them because then you'll be in ritual impurity and you won't be able to come before God. He asks her for a drink. He wants a drink from her jar. He uses that to provoke her and to start a conversation because she's pretty surprised by that. Why would he ask me for a drink? And you can read that's all in the chapter, part of chapter 4 before our passage today. He's breaking down that idea that she has about uncleanness. And he's showing her that the kingdom of God is coming. It's even coming in her midst. And it's of a different order. And as he teaches in, elsewhere in the Gospels, it's not actually about whether your dishes are clean enough and who you share them with. Because the externals actually have no ability to make you right before God. It's really about the heart. It's really about the internals. It's really about whether you love, serve, and worship God as the true God. Or whether you're perhaps doing a mixture of trying to do some of your own things to get close to God as well. Or you're not worshiping God at all, but you're keeping all these external rules. And that was one of Jesus' most staunch criticisms was against people who did that. And he's showing her the externals don't matter. It's the internals. God's Messiah is here to bring her that knowledge. And as a result of this conversation of him saying, I want to have a drink from your water jar, her life and her theology has changed. She kind of gets this. And the, the conceptions that she had of, I can't talk to a Jew, can't talk to a Jewish man, we can't share articles of eating and drinking, all that has been changed because she started to see that, oh my goodness, that was just a fragment of something. That was um, the laws, they, they were a signpost and they were good and helpful and they had their day and their place, but this man is kind of the embodiment of that law and of God's promises. And this jar isn't so important. I think it's perfectly reasonable to, because Jesus was a human as you and I were, he was actually thirsty. I don't think this was just a cover, although he was being strategic. I think she left it for him to give him a drink as a mark and as an emblem of he's changed my life and my theology. I don't need to hang on to those ritual ideas that I had before. I'm going to leave him. I'm going to feed his need for his human thirst because he needs a drink. It's all changed for her. What do you do with that? What do you and I do with that? There's one sense in which she leaves the water jar because there's bigger and more important priorities. Although we need real H2O, water to live. We need God and the things of God. There's nothing more important than putting him in his right place. And, you know, it's an old idea. God in the Old Testament refers to himself as the fountain of living water. God himself is what you need spiritually. And it gives us some sort of indication about priorities. As I was saying in my prayer earlier, is God and being sure that we are in the fountain of his living water, that we are in communion and fellowship with him, is that more important than all our eating and drinking and coming and going? 
But similarly, in another way, I think this is really significant because the jar represents, as I said, Jesus' way in. To talk to this woman who's got really old ideas, some man-made ideas, some half-decent theology, but there's all kinds of things tied up in there. And Jesus uses this one article, this jar of water at the well, to get in and talk to her and start to challenge her assumptions and her faulty beliefs. And he starts to talk to her. So it's for us to think about what is the jar of water in our life? Well, firstly, who is the woman at the well in our lives? Who are the people in our circle that we know that we can be as intentional as Jesus about going to them, seeking them out, looking for conversation? And we know that they don't trust or love Jesus, but it's entirely possible that God could be burdening us and leading us in a good way to speak to them. And to seek them out. Because Jesus was highly intentional about doing this. He, he cut off from the rest of the disciples. Because he had a mission this day. And then you think about once you've identified who they are. You think about well what's the jar of water. What is the thing that I can talk to them about. That starts up a conversation about deeper things. Than just how's the weather. You know. And if you spend some time thinking about this. Because I think a lot of us have the problem of. I don't know where to start talking about Jesus. And to be totally fair. And I think it's a, good, um, it's a good reticence. We don't want to be that really weird person who just starts going up to people and saying, uh, have you heard about my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Because people come to our doorstep and do that, and we find it quite strange, and especially in our culture today. And there's, there's maybe a sense in which, yeah, we won't get very far doing that. But when you look at what Jesus did, he gives us this amazing model. Find something to talk about that gets you from that to some of the bigger things. So... An example would be, maybe people, when we're talking to them, after we've sought them out to go for a coffee, maybe that's the equivalent of, of the, the well today, some, or some kind of shared life, something we go alongside other people to do, and maybe they espouse a belief that they have. Maybe it's even a cliche. Maybe they say something like, well, you know, I believe everything happens for a reason. Um, or, I don't think that... There is any God or any meaning or any purpose in the world. Or maybe we challenge them at the level of they've got totally wrong ideas about what it is to follow God and to worship him and to be a Christian. Because the Samaritan woman did, and that's where Jesus used the jar of water to open up those issues. So maybe you know people who think, I need to dress a certain way to go to church. I need to first do certain things, whether it's stopping smoking or cleaning my life up somehow. I need to do a bunch of things in order to even go to church or try to be a Christian. I need to clean myself up in some way first. Maybe that's where you can speak to someone and really challenge those beliefs and go, actually, that's not the case at all. Jesus invites us to come exactly. Jesus enters into dialogue with us and conversation with us through his word exactly where we are. Maybe it's letting someone know just the sheer scandal of the grace of the gospel. That it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter how perfectly or not perfectly you've attended church or kept God's laws or rules. That's ex- if, if you're the person who hasn't done things perfectly, you're exactly who Jesus is looking for. To change and transform your life and your heart and explode his love in your heart. 
Maybe those are the kinds of things. Maybe we can go to people who are hiding from life the way it seems this woman was, who are in inner pain and turmoil because of things that have happened to them, and we can seek them out, and we can ask them, how are you? How are you coping? I think that is a great Christian witness that we look like our Savior and that we seek out people who are hurting, and we can actually ask them how they're doing with that. And we do that, and it may lead to some of the bigger and deeper questions, but if not, we've been like Christ. We've showed them the concern and the compassion of Jesus. There are so many ways that we can be as intentional as Jesus is in this passage. And, and here's, here's the headline from, from the water jar, is that you and I exist in the same world as everyone else. We've been loved and cleaned up by God, and He's taken our lives on an amazing journey by saving us from our sin. But he's left us in the world to do things, to expand his kingdom. And he's left us, and our Messiah is the model for this, he's left us sharing in the same humanity as everyone else. Jesus is at the same well that everyone else drinks from. And he asked for a drink of water from the same jar that that woman was using. He shared in our humanity, he was sharing humanity with those around them, and I think that's the headline of this passage is be in the world around you. You're, you've got a different identity. You, you have a different source of life living within you. But experience and share the life in the world that everyone else does because that actually speaks really loudly. We're not siloed off in some corner or holy huddle because, you know, we believe in God. We're, we're out there and we're in the world and we're doing things and we're showing people that our Savior is so different to every other religious figure and every other head of religion because he 100% shares in the humanity that we experience. He needed a drink of water. He needed that every day. So do you. You're no different from the non-Christians around you in that you need food and water and clothing and you enjoy going to cafes and coffee shops. And so we use that as an opportunity to be God's ambassadors. And we look for the water jar moments that we might be able to bring the gospel and the light of God to people. Secondly, what does she do? She invites them. Verse 29, she went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? Look at the way that she puts that and she phrases it. She deliberately poses a question rather than making a statement. She invites curiosity from people. She says that this is personal to her, that she met him in what was almost certainly some difficulty, brokenness, dysfunction in her life. And he challenged her. I love that. He challenges her assumptions. He doesn't just say, you know what, you're just fine. You're just... And, and there is a strain of Christianity that is not good or helpful either, where we just tell people, you're just fine the way you are. You're great. God just loves you. That's not the case. We bring truth and love. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And she says that. He told me everything I ever did. He, he exposed my heart. He knew what I was before God. He challenged what I thought was the case with Judaism and Samaritanism. And, but it's personal to her. And she's excited about it. I think when you read this passage, you can almost hear the excitement in her voice. Come and see this guy. It's amazing. He's transformed my life. I wonder, could he be the Messiah? And what we do with that is basically just what I've said, is just follow the woman's lead on this. It can be the simplest things, in line with what we're thinking about it, looking for the water jar moment. 
And maybe a way into it is to, to ask questions. Could this, could this have something to it, this Christianity thing? I think long gone are the days where we could guilt trip or pressure people into um, press-ganging them into the church or faith or religion. And I don't think we should have ever wanted to do that anyway. But look at her approach to mission. Come and see a man. Come and see a person who is God and man and who transforms your life if you encounter him who gives you that message of grace that we are all looking for to absolve us of the guilt that we all feel because we're human and we've broken God's law. Come and see the man who takes care of that and gives you that sense of acceptance. Always being ready as well to say, come see someone who did this for me. You know, in Second Peter it talks about always being ready to give a good reason for the hope that's in you. If you and I are, a Christ, are Christians... There's no harm and probably a lot of profit in spending some time thinking, what exactly has Jesus done for me? If I had to say that to somebody in in two or three minutes, how would I say it? And it doesn't need to be a script and it doesn't need to be something you write down, but at least rehearsing it a little in your mind so that if someone does ask you, you're ready to go. You're like a soldier on the battlefield. You are ready to serve your king and to say what he's done for you. Because there's something immeasurably powerful about testifying to the power of Jesus and what he's done in our lives. And as I think it's reasonable to assume she was excited by this, because, I mean, think about it. The social world that she lives in, and she can't really talk to men, and she's a Samaritan, and she's unclean, and she's got a difficult past, and he's just come and validated her humanity. He's very much communicated you are made in the image of God, and that's where your worth comes from, and you're worth more than actually people around you are giving you credit for. No wonder she's excited. And I think that that's an amazing point for us, is that she kind of leads a mini revival in the Samaritan area. And I think that's probably because of God and what he planned to do in his spirit. But he happens to work through people, and I think he happened to work through her passion and excitement. And if we're God's agents and the people he's commissioned and sent to bring his good news into the world, then I wouldn't like to make it a rule, but I think I would nudge towards the fact that we probably should be excited. I mean, think about it. If you've really believed the gospel, it means that God's given you eternal life, which starts now, but you will live with him forever. And you have been delivered from guilt and from the punishment and the fear of judgment. You've been delivered from the fear of death. You don't need to fear that as anybody else does. Why wouldn't you be excited by that? You walk in fellowship with the risen God. You have his word, his very word, that, which he has promised to speak to you in with the help of the Holy Spirit in your, in, in your hand, all of us. And so I think it behooves us to follow this woman in our excitement, it's probably pretty certain that nobody else is going to be excited by our faith if we're not. Have that sense of questioning, opening, invitation, and questioning. It might just be saying to someone who we know doesn't really buy this whole Christianity thing, who might challenge it, just going, well, have you ever actually, have you ever looked at Jesus? Have you ever looked at what he has to say about himself, what others said about him in his scriptures? Have you ever looked at any of the evidence for that? Even not trying to give the evidence, have you ever just read through the Gospels or any of them? 
I think it's worth asking people to do that. I think it's worth then praying for them and saying, God, speak to them there and show them your son, Jesus, because he has promised that his word will go out and it'll accomplish exactly what he wants it to. You never know when that's going to work. I think it's good to invite questions, to invite people into an experience, and especially above all, into coming and seeing a man. She leaves her water jar. She invites them, and I've covered some of this finally. She leads them to the Word. I love how in verse 42, they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. We've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. That clinches it for them the fact that they hear Jesus' own words. And as I said, all of Scripture is God-breathed, and Jesus actually calls himself the Word of God. That's what John's Gospel in many ways is about, is that he came to perfectly represent this as someone living uh, and captured in flesh to show us the Word of God, what it looks like when it's animated and moving through the world and expanding God's kingdom and mission. We're not actually looking to make our own following, We're not looking to form a cult. We're not looking to make our organization bigger. We're looking for people to encounter Jesus as the living word of God and to have their lives transformed by that. And that's a great aim and that's a great hope to have. That's a great way to move through the world is looking for other people to encounter that. And so as you think of who these people, the woman at the well might be in your life, you think about what might be the water jar moments that you'd be able to have with them to share with them this amazing gospel. And you think about how you might be able to invite people to come and see a man into an exciting journey of discovery as to the risen Christ. Our greatest hope and our greatest comfort is that we lead people to the Word of God and we expect it to do its work, to wield its power, Let's give it away. Let's let people know that Jesus is found in these scriptures. And let's pray for God's Spirit to apply it. And let's watch God work and apply it with power to make people wise to salvation. May he bless his word to us. Amen.